Please take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 5. That will be our text this morning, Acts chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I would like to wind back the clock of church history to just over a century ago. It was April 10th, 1912, when a 39-year-old pastor from Scotland named John Harper, boarded a ship bound for the United States. His wife had died some years before, and so he was making this transatlantic journey with his sister and his six-year-old daughter. The primary purpose for their crossing was that he had been invited to preach in D.L. Moody's former church in Chicago. But... Four days into their voyage, just 20 minutes before midnight on April 14th, 1912, the vessel on which they were sailing collided with an iceberg. We are all familiar with the tragic ending of the RMS Titanic, but it's hard to imagine the gravity and the panic that spread through the passengers and the crew in the moments that followed. And I do wonder if you or I had been there, what would we have done? As for John Harper, he sprang into action. After safely getting his daughter and his sister onto the lifeboats, He took no regard for his own well-being, and he turned back to the decks of the ship. And with fervent boldness, he spent the final hours of his life preaching the gospel to anyone who would listen. His primary text was Acts 16, 30, and 31. The answer to the Philippian jailer's desperate question, what must I do to be saved, and Paul's Glorious answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. At one point, Harper urged a man to repent and turn to Christ, but the man refused to listen. And the pleading pastor in that moment took off his life jacket and gave it to the man and said, you will need this more than I do. Even after the enormous ship disappeared beneath the waves in the early morning hours of April 15th, John Harper could be found swimming among the pieces of wreckage, finding those who were clinging desperately for life and urging them to give their lives to Christ. Some years later, at a reunion of Titanic survivors, There was a man there who had been clinging to that wreckage. He had been clinging to that wreckage when Harper came up to him, swimming in the icy water, and urged him to believe on the Lord Jesus. And at first the man resisted, but then the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to the gospel, and in that moment he was saved. And at that reunion, he told his fellow survivors, I am the last convert of John Harper. Because it was after that conversation that he watched as Harper swam into the darkness, never to be seen again. 
And as his earthly sojourn came to an unexpected end in the icy waters of the North Atlantic, John Harper entered his heavenly rest. He saw Christ face to face, accompanied no doubt by many souls who had heard the gospel through him just moments before they were swept into eternity. What a legacy. And I wanted to tell that story for at least two reasons. First, because it's one of my absolute favorite stories from church history. I just think it's so cool that there was a faithful pastor on the Titanic preaching the gospel as the ship went down. And second, because as we look at the world around us, It feels like we are on the Titanic. As our society slips into the abyss of depravity and decay, while the waters of persecution and hostility rise up around us. And the question is whether or not we, like John Harper, will show the kind of boldness and fortitude and courage that it takes to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation through Jesus Christ alone to a world that is sinking deeper and deeper into the darkness. Well, our theme this morning is boldness, and specifically boldness for Christ. As followers of the Lord Jesus, and even more so as ministers of his gospel, we ought to be characterized by fearless faith, unwavering resolve, and gospel courage. This is the kind of boldness that takes a stand for Christ and proclaims his truth, even if it costs us everything in this life, even to the end. It is this kind of boldness that I believe Peter describes in 1 Peter 3.15 when he instructs believers not to fear the intimidation of the world, but instead to sanctify Christ as Lord of our hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. As Peter explains in that text, This kind of boldness flows from the conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is an act of obedience to him, and it focuses on the content of his gospel, the hope that is in us, the truth that has transformed us. The message we proclaim is a bold message, and the motivation from which it stems is a bold message motivation. And yet I appreciate how Peter adds at the end of that verse that we are to communicate this with gentleness and reverence. And so when we speak of boldness this morning, we are not talking about being brash or pugnacious or obnoxious or arrogant or torching people on social media. We are talking instead of a steadfast resolve 
A resolve that arises from the conviction that Jesus is Lord and his gospel alone saves. And out of submission to him, we patiently yet persistently proclaim his truth to a lost and dying world. This kind of fearless faith characterizes the ministries of biblical figures. Think of John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul. It marks the lives of faithful believers throughout church history from the early martyrs to modern missionaries. It defines the legacy of faithful pastors like a John Harper whose final pulpit was a sinking ship. And if we are to stand unashamed of the gospel and unashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the kind of unwavering resolve that must characterize us. And our passage this morning in Acts chapter 5 presents such a picture of Christian boldness and unwavering resolve. Before we dig into this text, just a little bit about the context. The events recorded in this chapter take place within the first two years of the church's inauguration on the day of Pentecost. In all likelihood, it has been just a few months since the birth of the church. Acts chapter 2 details that momentous event at Pentecost when Peter delivered a powerful sermon and some 3,000 souls were added to the church. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go to the temple and a lame man is there asking for silver or gold and Peter says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I give to you is the hope and power of Christ. And in that moment, that man was healed and a crowd gathered. And Peter again preaches a bold message of salvation through Jesus and many more are added to the church. In Acts 4, Peter and John are hauled in front of the religious leaders and they are strictly warned to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And Peter's reply in Acts 4 verses 19 and 20 is classic whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After being threatened and released, Peter and John returned to the church in Jerusalem where fellow believers have been praying for them, specifically praying that God would continue to give them this kind of boldness. Look at Acts 4.29. Here's the prayer request. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. I love that. In the face of this antagonism and hostility, the prayer request is, Lord, give us the fortitude to speak your word with confidence, with boldness, with courage. One theologian quipped that courage is fear that has said its prayers. We see that in those words in chapter 4. 
And as we come then to chapter 5, we will see that prayer request answered in a dramatic way. Chapter 5, of course, opens with the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which is a reminder that God will not be mocked and that he takes the holiness of his church seriously. In verses 12 to 16, we see that the Lord was clearly blessing the work of the apostles and the ministry of the Jerusalem church. In keeping with their foundational role as apostles, Peter and his associates performed healing miracles, signs which authenticated them as messengers of God, validated their gospel ministry. According to verse 14, the church was growing rapidly. In fact, the apostles were so popular that people were traveling from all around Jerusalem to be healed and to hear the word preached. And as we just noted in Acts 4.29, they had prayed for boldness. And now starting in verse 17, the fearlessness they prayed for will be put to the test. All of that brings us then to our text for this morning, Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 42. And as we unpack these verses, I'd like to organize our thoughts around two big questions. The first question is, what does boldness for Christ look like? What is this boldness that Christ calls us to display? What does it look like? And second, what are the ingredients that make such unwavering resolve possible? What are the elements needed to cultivate this kind of boldness in our own hearts and lives and ministries? What does boldness look like and how can we cultivate it? We'll begin with that first big question. What does boldness for Christ look like? And Acts 5 answers that question by recording the compelling example of the apostles. As we think about their example, we're going to focus on three characteristics of their fearless faith, of their unwavering resolve. In verses 17 to 26, they exhibit the boldness to speak. In verses 27 to 39, they demonstrate the boldness to stand. And finally, in verses 40 to 42, they exemplify the boldness to suffer, to speak, to stand, and to suffer. We'll begin, verses 17 to 26, with the boldness to speak. Let's look at the text, verses 17 to 21. But the high priest rose up, along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, And they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. The apostles, of course, had done nothing wrong, yet the religious rulers 
had them arrested and imprisoned, jealous of their popularity and fearful of the crowds. In Acts 4, 17 and 18, Peter and John had been strictly warned to stop preaching in the name of Christ, and they, of course, refused to comply. And now, along with the rest of the apostles, they have been arrested and jailed. But their incarceration does not last long. As he will do again in Acts 12, God sends an angel during the night to open the prison doors and to allow the apostles to leave. But this is not your typical prison break. The angel does not instruct them to flee from Jerusalem or to go into some sort of witness protection program. No, the the counterintuitive instruction is simple. Go back to the place where you were arrested And keep doing the thing that got you sent here in the first place. Verse 20, go, stand, and speak. And then he says, the angel does, that the content of their speech is to be the whole message of this life. Which is just a beautiful description of the gospel. And so what do the apostles do? They immediately return to the temple so that even as the sun comes up, they're back in the same spot proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ. And admittedly, the circumstances are supernatural. They're extraordinary with angelic prison breaks and heavenly instructions. But we should not overlook the apostles' fearless obedience as they open their mouths and speak out for the sake of Christ. They had been warned by the religious leaders not to preach Jesus. They had been imprisoned for preaching about Jesus. They knew that they would likely be arrested again for speaking the name of Jesus. So what do they do? They preach Jesus. Their example of fearless faith is compelling because they're willing to speak up and speak out even though they know that there are serious repercussions coming. It is this kind of courage that Christ calls us to as his ambassadors. The boldness that speaks the truth even when the world does not want to listen. The apostles went back to the temple And they began to speak. Meanwhile, back in the jail, things erupt into chaos when the soldiers come to collect their prisoners and no one's there. Look at the second half of verse 21. Now, when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. 
They were perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Verse 24 highlights the perplexity of both the religious leaders and their officers. How amazed they must have been, not only that the prison cell was empty, but that the prisoners were right back in the same spot where they had been just yesterday. I think they were amazed at the audacity of these followers of Jesus. Notice how the fearlessness of the apostles is contrasted in verse 26 with the fear of the soldiers. Normally it's the fugitive who is afraid, but not on this occasion. The soldiers are afraid, the apostles undeterred. When told to stop preaching, the apostles refused to comply They responded instead with gospel courage and the boldness to speak, publicly proclaiming the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Brings us to a second characteristic of their boldness. Verses 17 to 26, we saw the boldness to speak. And now in verses 27 to 39, the boldness to stand. The boldness to stand. Verse 27, when they had brought them, that is the soldiers, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, the apostles, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Stop there for a moment. I find this incredible Because it was just months earlier that Peter and his fellow apostles fled when Jesus was arrested in the garden. Peter had followed the soldiers from a distance. He had made his way to the courtyard of the house of the high priest. And it was there that he denied his Lord three times, cowering in fear. And here we are just months later and he stands before this same high priest and he stands before the same council that had condemned his master to be crucified and he hears them say in essence, we told you to stop preaching and you did not listen and you have filled Jerusalem with the message of Jesus, the one whom we sentenced to death. What do you have to say for yourselves? How will Peter respond? Will he flee into the night? Will he deny his Lord again? Will he capitulate under the pressure? Not this time. Verse 29 But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. 
He is the one whom God called to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. We're going to come back and examine these verses in more detail at the end of our message. But what I want to point out here is the resolve and the boldness that we hear in Peter's words. He does not back down or shrink away or make excuses or apologize. No, he looks at the council of religious leaders, the very leaders who sentenced Christ to death, and he says, in essence, we are men under authority from God, and his authority trumps your authority, and so with all due respect, we cannot comply with your prohibition for our duty to obey God and carry out his will transcends our obligation to listen to you. Peter boldly answers the council by appealing to an authority greater than theirs. And again, I think the apostle's example is compelling for us to consider on what basis can we have the boldness to stand up in the public square and say truth is absolute and the church is essential and heaven and hell are real and evolution is false and homosexuality is sin and gender is determined at birth and there is salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus Christ. We can do so because we are compelled by the word of God. And therefore, we appeal to an authority that is higher than any other authority. And on that basis, we say with Peter and the apostles, we must obey God rather than men. Well, for Peter and his fellow apostles, this daring stand nearly cost them their lives. Look at verse 33, but when the religious leaders heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. And he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan of action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Or else you may even be found fighting against God. Now verses 33 to 39 provide an interesting interlude into the narrative, almost a parenthetical explanation almost causes us to ask the question why Luke chose to include it. I think there are several reasons. First, Gamaliel's words explain why the apostles were not executed on the spot on that day. Second, and more importantly, 
Gamaliel's speech highlights a basic theological truth, namely that if God is in something, then nothing will be able to undermine or destroy it. The short-lived movements of Thutis and Judas of Galilee, self-professed deliverers of Israel, were clearly not of God because those movements disintegrated into nothing. These movements stand in contrast to the permanence of the Jesus movement against which the gates of hell itself cannot prevail. And then thirdly, Gamaliel's warning to his fellow leaders is that if this movement is from God and we fight against it, then we will be fighting against the work of God. And this provides a somewhat ironic backdrop to the rest of the persecutions that occur against the church throughout the book of Acts, in which the religious leaders continue to resist and fight against the work of God. Clearest example of this is Saul prior to his conversion. I think it's significant in Acts 22 verse 3 that we learn that Saul was a student of Gamaliel. But in Saul's crusade against Christians, he ignores the advice of his mentor. And in Acts 9, when he encounters the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he learns that he has, in fact, been fighting against God. So in this way, Gamaliel's testimony serves as a condemnation of the unbelief of the religious leaders who repeatedly resist the work of God. Coming back then to the primary point we are making in this section, Peter and his fellow apostles show great boldness by standing firm even in the face of severe persecution. They did not back down. They did not cower, compromise, or capitulate. They stood with steadfast courage knowing that the Lord had called them to exhibit this kind of fearless faith. Brings us to a third characteristic of the boldness that we see exhibited and displayed in this passage. Verses 17 to 26, the boldness to speak. Verses 27 to 39, the boldness to stand. And now, thirdly, verses 40 to 42, the boldness to suffer. The boldness to suffer the last three verses of our chapter. The council took Gamaliel's advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Based on Gamaliel's advice, the religious leaders relent from their intent to kill the apostles. Instead, they have them flogged, meaning that they were given 39 lashes with a whip in keeping with the protocols outlined in Deuteronomy 25. Severe but not lethal, flogging was intended to communicate a very direct message. Stop doing this or something worse will happen. How do the apostles respond 
Well, for starters, they rejoice in their suffering, not because getting severely beaten is enjoyable, but because they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. To suffer for his sake is an act of worship, service, and fidelity to him. And in that, there is great reward. And so they rejoiced. But not only that, verse 42, every day they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus. They refused to be intimidated by the threats of the religious leaders. They did not stop even for one day. They kept preaching in the temple. They kept teaching from house to house. They kept proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. They kept right on doing it because they understood that they must obey God rather than men. And so we see that they suffered well on two counts. First, they found joy in the opportunity to suffer for their Savior, the one who had suffered so much more for their sakes. And second, they suffered well because they did not allow the suffering to deter them from obedience to Christ. Instead of being intimidated, their suffering only deepened their resolve. Again, this is a compelling example for us to consider. Gladly they suffered and boldly they obeyed. Well, up to this point, we have seen in our survey of Acts 5 what boldness for Christ looks like. The boldness to speak and the boldness to stand and the boldness to suffer for the sake of Christ. That brings us to our second big question. How can we cultivate this kind of boldness in our own hearts, in our lives, and in our ministries? Or to ask this question another way, what are the ingredients that make this kind of courage possible? The answer to that question is found back in verses 29 to 32 in Peter's reply to the council. Let me read those verses again. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. For the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter's answer in those verses highlights three core ingredients of gospel courage. How were Peter and his fellow apostles able to stand with such unwavering resolve and fearless faith in the face of such severe opposition, what looked like certain death? Well, three things. First, they recognize their God-given mandate. Verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. This was not something optional. It was an obligation, an obligation from the highest possible authority, God himself. Found one author who said, courage is not the absence of fear, but the judgment that something else is more important than fear. 
And the apostles understood that obedience to God is more important than the fear of man. And so simply by being obedient, they proved to be courageous. So a God-given mandate. Second, they reiterated their Christ-centered message. A Christ-centered message. Look at verses 30 and 31. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. You put him to death on the cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. It's probably a condensed summary of what Peter said in that moment, but you'll notice that all of the essential components of the gospel message are here. The death of Christ, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, the exclusivity of of salvation through him, along with the necessity of repentance and the reality of forgiveness. It's all here. This this is the gospel. The apostles are on message. They had been personally transformed by this message. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians, we believe, therefore we speak. These men believed, and therefore they would not and could not stay silent And then third, they rested in their spirit-empowered mission. Verse 32, their spirit-empowered mission. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Their mission, according to Acts 1.8, to be witnesses to the truth of Christ. And here Peter and his fellow apostles rest in the fact that that witness is empowered by the Holy Spirit who has been given to them through Christ. The word for witness there in verse 32 is the word martus in Greek. It's the word from which we get the English word martyr. A martyr is a witness to Jesus Christ, even to the point of death. And here Peter and his fellow apostles boldly declare to the religious leaders, we are witnesses of Jesus Christ, And we seek to accomplish our mission doing so with the confidence that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So for Peter and his fellow apostles, their boldness was grounded in a God-given mandate, a Christ-centered message, and a Spirit-empowered mission. And someone might say, well, that was good for the apostles. But the truth is that we possess those same ingredients. We have been given a mandate, a commission to go into the world and make disciples by teaching them all that Christ has commanded us. And he has given us those commands in his word, which is our supreme authority. And second, we we know the gospel message because it is the message that has transformed us. By God's grace. So we are called also to be witnesses to Christ. Testaments and testimonies of the saving work he has done in us. And third, we also have the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who empowers his word. So that when the gospel is preached, it does not return void. 
And our boldness then is grounded in the knowledge that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so by remembering our God-given mandate and our Christ-centered message and our spirit-empowered mission, we too can have this kind of boldness. Same kind of fearless resolve displayed by Peter and his fellow apostles in Acts chapter 5. I think the tendency is for us, or at least for me, to think that we have to muster up some sort of internal fortitude in order to have this kind of boldness. In reality, all we have to do is be obedient and live out our biblical convictions with consistency, even when it becomes unpopular to do so. You see, in verse 29, Peter wasn't focused on being bold. He was focused on being obedient. The result was fearless faith and a courage that flowed from God-honoring convictions. The same ought to be true of us. Boldness for Christ is grounded in the gospel flows from hearts that have been transformed by God's grace and it's seen in lives that are committed to obeying him no matter the cost. Well, in our survey of Acts 5 this morning, we've sought to answer two big questions. What does the boldness that Christ calls us to display, what does that boldness look like? Well, it is the boldness to speak And it is the boldness to stand and it is the boldness to suffer well for his sake. And what ingredients are needed to cultivate this kind of boldness? Well, we simply need to remember what we read there in verses 29 to 32. The things that God has already provided for us a mandate to go, a message to preach, and a mission he has promised to empower through his spirit. We began this morning with the account of John Harper, a fearless pastor who died boldly preaching the gospel even while the ship sank. I'd like to close with another historical account, this one from just a few decades earlier in church history. Most of you are familiar with the hymn or the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. The words go like this. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And at first glance, a song titled, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, maybe makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Those lyrics sound like a song about free will or maybe easy believism, but but nothing could be further from the truth. I have Dr. Lawson sitting here on the front row. I'm 
going to make sure that that's clear. In the late 1800s, a Christian missionary traveled to a village in northern India, a place that was dominated by militant Hinduism. After many personal sacrifices, that missionary finally saw one man and his family come to saving faith in Christ. And after the missionary left, the angry village leaders sought to make an example out of that man. They dragged him and his family into the center of the village and they threatened that if he would not recant, they would kill his children by shooting them with arrows. The man replied, I have decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back. They killed his children, but his resolve remained undeterred and he declared the world may be behind me, but the cross is still before me. Enraged, the village leaders threatened to kill his wife if he would not deny Christ. Again, he refused. And again, they responded with brutality and violence. And seeing his family slain and realizing that he alone remained, he reportedly said, though no one is here to go with me, still I will follow Jesus. With those final words, the man himself was shot dead with arrows and, of course, immediately ushered into the presence of his Savior. According to the story, when the missionary returned to that village, much to his surprise, many of those village leaders had come to Christ because they were so convicted and compelled by the testimony of that man. And his final words became the basis for an Indian hymn that eventually made its way across the oceans into the form that we know and are familiar with in English. When I think of the fearless faith and steadfast boldness to which Christ calls us, It's hard for me to imagine a more compelling story than that. The world around us may mock us, mistreat us, or even murder us. Hostile governance may persecute us. Angry detractors may antagonize us. Secular culture may cancel us. But if we are committed to boldly follow Christ, no matter the cost, then we will speak, we will stand, and we will suffer without wavering. This is what it means to sanctify him as Lord. After all, we belong to him. He has redeemed us. He has commissioned us. And there is no turning back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of boldness that is displayed in these verses in Acts chapter 5. We confess our failure many times, and we ask that by your grace, we would be found faithful 
so that we would walk in a manner consistent with the gospel, consistent with our convictions, and that simply by being obedient, we would be a beautiful reflection of our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we love and long to see. And we pray these things today in his name. Amen.